Salam and welcome to our podcast, Muslims on Fire. Stories from ordinary Muslims doing extraordinary things. With your host, Maruf. Dear listener, Based on many requests from our listeners, we are launching a Muslims on Fire Academy. It's for those who want to do more than just listening. It's for those who not only want to be inspired, but to be one of the Muslims on Fire as well. It's for those who want to discover their purpose in life, follow their dreams, and live in prosperity. If this is you, join us for a journey of a lifetime. The introduction course is free. Learn more at academy.muslimsonfire.com. Learn more at academy.muslimsonfire.com. Hey, assalamu alaikum. This is your host, Maruf. And today we have a very special guest sister, Sister Saida. Sister Saida, welcome to the show. Assalamu alaikum. Wa alaikum assalam wa rahmatullah. Jazakallah khair. My honor to be here. It's likewise, it's likewise. Always nice talking to you. It's been a while since we talked, isn't it? It has. It's been far too long. I think years, in fact. <laughs> yes, in fact. Yes, and that's right. So we, uh, we have known each other for some years now, but unfortunately we have never met yet, have we? No, and that's the strange thing, because like when <laughs> I'm traveling to your place, then you're not there. When you're traveling to mine or when we're kind of like close we enough miss each other. not quite close enough we always miss each other <laughs> that's true that's true i also follow you um i think on social media i think you also have been trying traveling quite a lot with your family recently isn't it yeah alhamdulillah we were um very blessed actually to uh travel for a few years and went to you know egypt and malaysia and the us and um, Indonesia and various other different places in between but for the moment now we've kind of been back in London for almost two years. Okay okay we'll get to that in a moment. So as I mentioned so what we're going to discuss today is that your backstory your life story were were you I mean were you I mean where you were born your childhood and uh, and how you find let's say, your calling, your purpose, right? And up to what you're doing right now. If you're ready, we're going to go back to our childhood. Um, so tell us, tell us uh, your, one of your fond memories from your childhood. What do you remember? I mean, were you born? Uh, what kind of family you were raised up? Would you like to get to know you a little bit better? Yeah, um, so I'm uh, born and bred in London, in okay. the United Kingdom. Mm -hmm. And... Um, my, it's a very interesting story of how I came into this world, actually, because my <laughs> father was here um, doing a PhD, and then okay. he went back to Pakistan, um, married my mom, and then they came back uh, or came to London. And I, I think, you know, literally, you know, nine months later, I was born. Okay. And um, I can't imagine that my dad had expected that to happen so quickly neither had my mum but you know there I was and uh, as I was born 
and my dad was still studying, there was kind of like a big realization of, you know, the finances and everything else. So he then started to work. I, I don't think he completed his doctorate, which um, is one of the things that still pains me actually <laughs> on his behalf. Yeah. And, um, and then, you know, life just kind of continued like that. So I went to um, a primary school in London where me and my sisters were, and, and there was one other, we were the only non-white people um, within the school. And that in itself had some quite interesting um, kind of manifestations. I mean, obviously schools in London now are very, very diverse, but in the mm. 70s, it was not like that. I see. Tell us, tell us more about it. So how was your experience at school? Yeah, I mean, I, I would think, I'd like to think it was pretty normal. And it was, but then there was also the othering. And I think I always felt that I was different. And that's not just for me. It was also the way that I was made to feel. So, for example, there's one incident that I still remember so clearly, which is that I went to a friend's house after school and her dad was in the kitchen making cheese on toast and he hadn't seen us, but he'd heard me speak. And then as soon as he came into the living room, he was like, oh, I, I didn't think you'd look like that. You know? And then he went to unpack this and pretty much said if there was a wall between us, he would have just expected me to look like every other Londoner in that time. I see. Yeah. It must be a bit shock for him at that time, I guess. <laughs> perhaps. But, you know, I think, I mean, maybe people just didn't have a language for how to communicate at that time whereas now i think if someone said something like that it would be seen to be very clearly racist yeah and but it's funny isn't it like we go back i get we just memorize very specific things in our history right especially in this case childhood i mean there must be a lot of things happen but somehow you kind of it, this incident kind of made an impression on you like do you think how kind of like along the way like did it did it affect in a, in, in any way I think your upbringing, how you see the life or world today, these kind of memories in, in, in some way? Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. And I, I don't think it has affected me in that, you know, um, I think that the world is racist because I certainly don't. But I think mm -hmm. I've realized actually that people don't know how to communicate um, their uncertainty and i think that's really all it was he just did not know how to respond to me because i look different childhood questions are sponsored by ali huda ali huda is a video on demand streaming platform for muslim children where they can watch cartoons and shows while learning about islam the fun way if you are a Muslim parent, this will be one of your best investments. Visit www.alihuda.com for a seven-day free trial. Now back to the show. And so even kind of like, I remember when I first went to university because I studied in Glasgow mm -hmm. and uh, there was um, one of my kind of fellow students was from the north of Scotland and he'd never met somebody that was not white and Scottish before <laughs> and so when we became kind of you know good friends he found it really really strange that he was friends with somebody that was very very different to him 
and again i think it's it's just not knowing and so the thing that comes from the othering is that that people don't know what their own prejudices are and then yeah. when they kind of face them it's a surprise so they don't know how to handle it you know this reminds me that the ayah in the quran Allah says that we have made you into many nations so you get to know each other right do you remember this it's just yeah. uh, getting to know each other because of differences i mean that's that's very interesting very interesting you know what um some of the listeners might be in that transition period. What I mean is that, you see, I remember myself just finishing up school and trying to choose what I'm really, I was really going to study. In my case, I would just looked at what kind of university available. I just went for the best one I thought. And uh, it was economy, I think economy, right? Econ- economy and diplomacy in, in my case. But I didn't really kind of like it after I started, you know, studying the thing. So I just want to, I would like to ask you like, you mentioned you started studying at the university. How did you come up? Like, how did you choose what you really want to study? You know, after school. I mean, I I think it was more of a natural progression from the things that I was interested in. So, okay. I've never really been academically minded, and I think looking back now, I wish I had done something like law. Um, okay. I did. I did architecture. You know, and um, I very much like creativity. Um, I managed to persuade the school to do to let me do um, design and technology A level, even though I hadn't done anything related to design and tech in my previous secondary education. And then I ended up with an A grade. And I think that just shows that when you have an interest in something and you follow your path and your truth and you apply yourself you can actually achieve at very, very high levels. It just really requires that determination and consistency. Um, so you were, what you were saying is that, so you went to study, you went forward to study architecture, right? Yeah, I did, yeah. And okay. uh, it's seven years, I mean. <laughs> wow, seven years. Yeah. Oh. So I mean, okay, let me ask you this. After you finished um, your studies, did you, did you get a job as an architect? I guess I, at this fact, I never knew you actually studied architecture. So what happened then? Yeah, so um, I remember actually, so you have to do kind of like two work experiences in order to qualify. Okay. And so for the first one, it was the time of um, a really big recession in the UK. Mm-hmm. And I applied for 600 what jobs. What year is this? Oh gosh, it must have been like 90, oh gosh, 97 maybe? Okay. Yeah. 90, okay. So yeah, so a long time ago. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah. In our internet age, I can imagine, yeah, go ahead. And yeah, so then I applied for 600 jobs and um, yeah. I didn't want to stay in Glasgow, but it just happened that the one job that I was offered was in Glasgow. So I ended up then going back and living for another year there. But I think, again, it just shows, look, if someone knocks you down, you've got to keep on going, keep on, you know, because it's crazy. I mean, who applies for 600 jobs? <laughs> that's, that's, I mean, I would say, yeah, that's, that's, um, so I, that's, that, that's, that's, yeah, out of ordinary, I would say. Um, but like applying 600 jobs, I mean, you must have automated some of it, or you were actually applying and customizing each cover letter 600 times. Yeah, I mean, this was before the internet, right? Oh, so, I see, I see, I see, wow. Yeah. And so how many can you imagine? 
I must have, I think I must have gone for about a dozen interviews. Okay. Um, Good success. Of course, <laughs> yeah, lots of rejections and things, but you know, you, you just have to keep on plowing through the, the kind of challenge that is presented in front of you and keep on going until you get what you need. Because had I not got that work experience, I wouldn't have been able to continue through to the next stage and then qualify. Yeah. So you went back to the Glasgow, you worked there for a year. And so that was, that must be in some related to, to, to architecture, right? As you said. Yep. So I then kind of finished the first year's experience, did the diploma in architecture, um, and then you have to do another year of work experience in order to qualify. Okay. So as I was doing that, kind of pretty much maybe a, a week, two weeks before um, I was due to sit my final exams, I ended up being involved in a really horrific car accident. Okay. And and I was in hospital for a while. And of course, you know, you, you're not looking at your body and thinking what on earth has happened to me. You're just thinking, how, on, how am I going to sit my exams? And wow. so for the few weeks after that, that became my main focus. And my employers were very generous in that, you know, they um, allowed me to dictate the answers. Um, and then they typed them up for me. They didn't have to do any of this, but I was able to submit and I passed. Mm-hmm. And I think that kind of adrenaline from that must have kept me going for a couple of weeks. But after that, I then realized the real mess that I was in. And I kind of was in a situation where I was unable to go to the bathroom unaided. I couldn't, you know, cook anything. I couldn't peel a potato. It was uh, a real mess. I see. I see. Um, that must be a kind of traumatizing experience, I think. It's, I mean, for me, it will be very, I mean, almost impossible to, to visualize, like, I guess, at this point. So this is after you, almost you got your permission, right, as architect to work for. That's what happened at that exact moment, isn't it? Yeah, and, and I managed to kind of complete my exams. And then, and some of that stuff I did from hospital, and then I kind of, like, was literally then facing with the um, fallout from what had happened from the car accident. Um, I and I couldn't go back to work. I, you know, I, I couldn't do any of the things that I wanted to do. I and I spent six months kind of just thinking, why has this happened to me? And all mm. of the other things that come with that. And at the end of it, I realized actually I didn't want to stay doing the job that I was doing. I didn't really want to be in Glasgow anymore. And I moved back to London. Okay. So you moved back to London because your family was in London at this time or because? Yeah. Yeah. I I think I just wanted to be closer to my family and the things that were really important. So, I mean, that's, uh, I think, uh, you know, um, getting this accident at this time of your life, I guess it will be, I would say many people will call it a very, very traumatic event. And it's not easy, you know, to come up from this kind of experience. Like, how did you cope with that? Like, what was your light or what was your rock to hold on to during this time? Yeah, I mean, I I, I felt emotions that I don't think um, I would wish upon anybody. You know, I felt a lot of anger. I felt... um, I was constantly asking myself, why did this happen to me? And then towards the end of that phase, I just realized that actually I I didn't believe that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala would put me in a situation like this for me not to fight back. Mm -hmm. And so I thought, okay, well, what can I learn from this? And what do I need to do to get better? 
And that was the beginning of me then kind of identifying paths to get work done, to get the physio that I needed that was a real struggle to obtain with the NHS and all of those other things. And I think because I started to fight against what happened, it gave me a real kind of impetus to not accept my situation. Do you struggle with deen and dunya balance in your life? Meet salam.app, a Muslim social network where your ego, nafs, is not in the center. It is a place to feed your soul with daily inspiration, to make new Muslim friends, and connect with ummah. Visit www.salam.app and download free for your iPhone or Android. I see. I mean, you just mentioned uh, Allah and, and, you know, he, I mean, so what I'm trying to ask you is that, for example, in my case, um, even though I was born in a Muslim country, I wouldn't say I wasn't kind of practicing until I was 20, 23 or something, right? But I mean, so in your case, like you also mentioned, uh, God, uh, you know, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in this, uh, harsh, in, in, in this condition. So can you walk us a little bit through, like, when I, I personally believe even you are born native Muslim or, you know, new Muslim, convert, red, at some point in life, you have to take a decision, say, okay, this is, this is what I believe in. This is my set of rules. This is maybe this Islam, maybe it's another thing, whatever. So everybody has the set of rules and beliefs, right? So in your case, when was the time that you decided okay, I'm Muslim, I really embrace it, I kind of, you know, I want to take it, you know, seriously, I want to start practicing it. Was it before the accident or out during or after? I just would like to know, I like, in terms of reference. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a great question. And I agree with you fundamentally. I think there's always going to be a point at which you say, okay, these are not just rituals and practices that I'm doing because my parents have told me to. Sure. And so, when I was about um, 13, I made a decision to read the Old Testament, the Bible, okay. um, the Torah, and the Quran. And I, I don't know what was going on in my mind, but I just thought, you know, I want to find out what um, the other religions say. And so I read these books, and that was the first time where I think I consciously thought, you know what, Islam is right for me. Mm. And I kind of made more of an effort to make sure that my prayers were on time and things like that. So I had a checklist. I kind of remember actually making this thing up and um, handwriting it. So you put the five salahs down the days of the month and I tick it off when I would pray. So I think I that was my, my first kind so of... At, at, at age of 13. Wow. Amazing. At the age of 13, I have no idea what was going through my mind. I see. I mean, do you think, do you think, uh, you mentioned your, your father and mom you were from Pakistan, like, did they have any, any kind of influence? Because some parents, we know that, you know, they, they encourage uh, their kids to, uh, to do Salah at this age. Was there some kind of influence from your parents? Or, I mean, it doesn't just come, I, I just want to know the cause. What was the main cause that just, you started thinking about this at this age? Sure. Yeah, I mean, I, I think my mum always raised us to pray and fast. And so I remember, for example, you know, when I was a little kid, um, my mum would take us out of school and take us to Regent's Park Mosque in London for um, Laird al-Qadr and would be praying a little bit and then running around the outside of the mosque. And it, it was a really, really fun experience. You know, and I think actually it's quite sad nowadays that, that kids are not encouraged to go to the masjid in the way 
that we were and allowed to have the fun as well as do the rituals. But I must say, um, I don't want to get to kind of misrepresent myself because whilst at 13, I was reading these and became much more aware of myself in relation to Islam. I, I was not the best Muslim in the world. So, you know, I wasn't doing all of the things that I should be doing. Alhamdulillah, I wasn't committing any major sins, but I, you know, there is that phrase that you go through as a teenager when you're trying to find yourself. And Absolutely. I think it's important for me not to misrepresent myself in I see. any way. I really appreciate your honesty and, you know, being, I think, yeah, it's not easy <laughs> to, to acknowledge that, I guess. That's interesting. So, okay, so we come back to, uh, to, to, to this point of your life. You, are, you, are, you, you, you have recovered, right? So then, then what, what, what happens next? Like you, you, are, you, took, uh, you said, you know, I'm going to take control of my life. I'm going to change this in some way. You decided and, and things are hopefully getting better. Yeah, I mean, like, the recovery took decades, if I'm wow. really honest. It wasn't just kind of like one day, everything being okay. And, you know, there's still things that I have to do in order to make sure that I am as mobile as I want to be. So yes, you know, you know that I love running and I enjoy going to the gym and things, but if I don't keep up my mobility, then some of the impact of the accident still comes back. So for me now, it's an ongoing thing. But after I kind of decided that I wasn't going to accept my situation as it was and started to, you know, do the physio and everything else, that, that came with it there there was I suppose the next key milestone in my life was really realizing that I did actually want to get married and it yeah. wasn't something that I was being forced to do and, and I was clear that I wanted to marry someone who was a Muslim and mm-hmm. someone who would be compatible with me rather than just kind of you know um fitting a, a stereotype of an arranged marriage okay yeah you did you want to take things in your own hands I understand that go ahead yeah, I mean, well, yes and no, because I, I mean, I kind of asked everybody that I knew um, if they knew somebody that was compatible to me, even my mom. So my mom okay. was asking her friends and people in public, because I was very open. If you don't know the route that that right person is going to come to you from. And so if it happened to come from my mom, then great. If it didn't, then also great. <laughs> and it happens that... Um, I asked one of my sister's friends if they knew anyone and they introduced me to a couple of people that I really didn't want to meet or sorry, that I, that I met and then didn't turn out right. Yeah. Yeah. And then I was a little bit reluctant to meet my husband because, you know, after a while you just get tired of meeting people and it can become um, an emotional strain as well. So I wanted to pause. We were talking about the age that there were no, probably no, no, not there, no more. I, I don't remember. I, I'm not sure. I just want to know that at that time, maybe you didn't have a lot of, like we have today, a lot of apps or sites. It's just everything should be offline, person to person, isn't it, at that time? It was majority like that. I mean, I think these mm-hmm. kind of like um, marriage uh, events and stuff like this, this was starting. But then sometimes I think these things, I don't know, they're not that great you know and not everybody is going with real seriousness about wanting to get married or their um, list of requirements is so long that it would be (laughs) a miracle if this person comes along you know so um so eventually i um met my 
or met the man who was going to be my husband. And um, we met. And then I think a month after, through various different meetings, um, a month after that, he then asked if um, I was interested in getting married. And then three months after that, alhamdulillah, we were married. So, so this is, we are talking about Brother Idris, right? Yes, alhamdulillah. Alhamdulillah. Okay. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah we, we talked briefly a couple of times. Um, it's, it's uh, okay, I just want to, I just want to keep talking, I think, but I really, I mean, what I'm saying, I, I, don't, I don't know much about him, but I, I, my first impression was very positive. Oh, maybe one of the guys would like to talk to him as well. Just go ahead. So, um, I just want to ask you something, like today, you see, when I look at, friends people like sometimes uh, you know at the end of the day when you remember a person um if you have to describe one or two words so that you can put different words i mean i don't know sometimes i do this to just simplify i mean when i think about you the two words that come to my mind is the positive psychology <laughs> you know mm-hmm. somehow because of maybe maybe some of the courses you did some of the things you were engaged in like i just want to know is it is it still one, your, one of the main things you are engaged in these days, positive psychology, in everything you do, or it's not? Yeah, no, absolutely. And I, th- and I think it really has been kind of elements of positive psychology that got me through challenges in mm. my life. So I very much am interested in positive psychology as a whole. I think Islam is, you know, founded in positive psychology. It's just absolutely. that we don't really have a, a language for how to bring some of these principles together. But I also think that um, the, cult, the Academy of Positive Psychology is missing um, real kind of um, uh, a religious aspect um, in depth. So there is yeah. spirituality, but there isn't really a good relationship between positive psychology and religion. Mm-hmm. And I think that that is something that I would like to change which is part of the reason why i'm doing my doctorate research so i'm looking at the lived experience of muslim women undertaking positive psychology interventions and once that's complete then that will i think be the first really really big push into this arena inshallah look inshallah sounds good so i mean so you see uh i just would like to know in a way that so, for example, anything, as you, as you mentioned, so one of the things you're doing, you're focusing right now, your energy to get this PhD. May Allah make this happen, even for your father as well. Um, so it will be a good achievement. And I think, but I think, um, so how, I, I, I mean, you mentioned briefly, I guess, I would like to know, like, uh, people, they, they look for a meaning, right? It's not about, you know, they don't just want to go a job just for the sake of money, but we want to, we want to do something with meaning. It could be in job, it doesn't really matter because it doesn't have to always be entrepreneurship, it could be in your job, but it has to give a meaning. But in your case, it is part of the psychology. I just want to know, like, have you discovered it? Is, did you discover it uh, or you were looking for something or it just came by because of the situation you were in? Can you go deep on this a little bit more? Yeah, yeah absolutely. So um, I, alhamdulillah, was very lucky in that because I've always been quite driven in my career. And so um, after my accident, you know, and some recovery, I kind of managed to get uh, a job as a project manager in local government. And I ended up being a 
um, director responsible for a program called Building Schools for the Future. So I had a budget of like $500 million and we would do construction schemes and regenerate education within certain boroughs in London. Mm-hmm. And whilst I loved my job, I and I, I love my job, I had, uh, and have, alhamdulillah, a great husband, wonderful kids. I had all of the trappings of success, but it just, there was something inside that just kind of, it didn't feel right. And I didn't feel as if I was alive anymore. And so um, there were some things that happened at work that really made me kind of question what I was doing. And I went home one day and I kind of said to Idris, look, I'm really, really unhappy and I want to quit. And um, this is maybe three months after he left his job to go into teaching. I see. And um, he just said to me, OK, look, say that you do whatever you want to do. We'll find a way of making it work. Mm-hmm. And that was the best thing that he could ever say to me, because I did then go on to leave that job. And that was, I think the beginning of the work that I'm doing now. So mm-hmm. I've had um, two kind of pivotal periods of my life where I've made a seismic shift in what I'm doing. One was after the car accident mm-hmm. and one was after I left my job. I and I spent six months just wondering, you know, what have I done? Because as I was making the decision to leave, everyone around me was saying, but you know, you're, salary your pension your holidays all of this and i gave that all up and so i allowed all of their noise to come inside my mind Mm. but once i recovered from that um and because i was doing coaching training at the same time i kind of thought okay this is the direction that my life is now going to go in and so i set up um, a coaching practice and primarily in executive coaching and helping people to progress in their careers But then people were always saying to me, you know, so why is this intervention like this? Or why does this strategy work like that? And I wanted to learn a bit more from the academic perspective. Mm -hmm. So it just happened that at that time, there were only two masters in applied positive psychology. One was in Pennsylvania and one was like a 15 minute bus ride from my house. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so of course I applied and alhamdulillah got in and then that really the rest of that is history. I see, I see. So at this time, time, time so you are, you are, uh, you're, you're finished uh, some part of the study, but now you're finishing your PhD, right? How, how is your progress with that? When is the, I mean, how close are you? Let me ask you this. So I, I've been doing it part-time and I've had to take a couple of sabbaticals. Okay. Um, so I'm just about to go back into it now. And now is the write-up stage. So I've probably got about um, a year, 18 months left. And then inshallah, that's it. I see. So as I understand, one of, your, one of your dreams is that to finish that and you would like to kind of link the, not only spirituality, but, but also the religion, especially in this case, kind of Islam, to a positive psychology. Is, is it what you want to do? Is it what, what I heard? Is it correct? And there's, there's a few things that I'm aiming to do. One is to really document the lived experience of Muslim women, because I think okay. when you look at the research that is available on Muslim women within the academy, it's primarily to do with um, domestic violence or uh-huh. to do with kind of really stereotypical kind of um, pigeonholing of Muslim women. And it doesn't actually acknowledge that 
that Muslim women are pretty amazing people, you know, and I want Absolutely. to try and rewrite some of, or, or kind of maybe create a better balance in some of the literature that's available there. So that's one thing. And then the other thing is really to create that link in terms of um, religion and positive psychology. So my actual doctorate is in practical theology. And I think that, um, as I said before, you know, Islam is positive psychology and Islam is also practical theology. You know, the minute we walk outside our home, people know, especially for Muslim women, they immediately know that you're Muslim. You can't hide from it. Mm. You know? So somehow kind of researching the impact of this, I think is quite important. I see. I mean, let me, let me ask you a bit, um, I think, different question. I mean, you mentioned uh, positive psychology and Muslim women. What about Muslim men? Are we, are we arrogant to understand that we don't, like, we need this? Or we are, I mean, as Muslim women, uh, men, are we arrogant that we don't acknowledge this? Or we don't need this kind of treatment? <laughs> well, why is it Muslim women, in your case, not inclusive like Muslim men as well? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a great question. And I think for me personally, you know, I, I am a Muslim woman. So uh -huh. I, it's easier for me to then um, work with Muslim women who are going oh, to be I much see, more I open. I see. So I, I think that we do need research for Muslim men within the field of positive psychology as well. Um, but I think that, you know, there is always going to be that little bit of a barrier in terms of, you know, a, a woman is going to share something with me that she's not going to share with a man. And I think it would be exactly That's the right. same. That's right. I see. I see. So, yeah. But I, but I think that um, men need positive psychology just as much as women. And if we look at the incidences <laughs> of um, mental health issues and um, depression and, and suicide amongst men, I mean, I think you know, it, it's really important for men to make sure that they do work on their own personal development and growth as well. I see. I see. I mean, that's, uh, thank you very much for sharing this. So what does, what does success, success mean to you? Gosh, that's such a big question. Um, I mean, I think for me, the ultimate success, of course, is going to be given uh, uh, entry into Jannah, inshallah, into Jannah al-Fiddur. Um, but success in terms of right now, today, is me doing uh, the best job that I can um, as a wife and a mother, um, as a daughter, as a sister, um, doing a great job for my coaching clients and really trying to take full advantage of the gift of life that I have. You know, I mean, one can say success is about money and all of the trappings, the artificial trappings of success. But look, I've done that and that didn't really make me genuinely happy. So for me, if my kids are flourishing and thriving and my husband's doing the same and some of that is down to me, I'm happy to take that success on board. I'm happy to take credit for it, you know? I see. I see. I mean, um, you see, they usually ask work-life balance. Instead, I would like to ask something similar, but maybe similar, like like much more, you know, relevant to what we're discussing. So, I think in our case, for our Muslims, like there is always this fine balance between Deen and Dunya, right? We're always playing along, try to be in the middle. How is it right now for you in in your life between Dunya and dun, Dunya and Deen balance 
do you follow what I'm trying to ask? Yeah, 100%. I mean, I, I think the greatest gift that we are given as Muslims is realizing that every single thing that we do can be an act of worship. Right? Absolutely. So your sleeping can be an act of worship. I even re remember hearing that um, Omar Subedar has got an excellent book called Plan Your Day the Prophet's Way. Okay. Um, by whom? In, by Umar Subedar. S U B E D A R. To give this, uh, we're going to share on the show notes, inshallah. Yeah, absolutely. And um, this is one of the books that we did in my book club recently. Okay. And the reason I love this book is because it's, I think it's, it's kind of a mandatory reading for a Muslim once a year, right? Because it wow. does a couple of things. One, it will kind of make you think, actually, you're not doing that badly. Because we as Muslims are always thinking, oh, I could be doing so much more. And of course you can. But as long as you're doing some of these things already, you're on the right path. But it also gives you ideas for other things that you could be doing. And it teaches you a language for how the day-to-day -day mundane things that you're doing can become acts of worship. So like I said, sleep going to the bathroom i mean it's crazy but if you go to the bathroom and you follow the prophetic steps that can also be an act of worship right so for me there is no kind of um conflict between deen and dunya because my deen is my dunya does that make sense absolutely that's very very profoundly put and that's that's a gem that's amazing oh, that's so amazing Thank you very much. So um, today, so today uh, you are in a different position, right? You you were working in this uh, in this job. You didn't like it, but today, would you say you are in the right place? Alhamdulillah, your your kids are healthy. You have a loving husband, but you also do and pursue what you really really love. Uh, we could we could say that, right? Or what do you? One hundred percent. One percent. That's amazing. That's amazing. So that's I think I'm, what I'm gonna do is that. Um, I'm going to ask one more, I guess, question. Uh, well, this is going to open a question. Do you think is there a question I should have asked I didn't, and you would like to, you would like to share with or share your story or something to inspire the listeners? Maybe, as you said, maybe there are people that are on the fence, or maybe there are people in the similar path to you. Would you like to say something? Yeah, I mean, I think one of my biggest realizations in the last five years or so has really been about something that I call stages of life. And so I know that people will be listening to my story and listening to what I'm doing at the moment and thinking, Oh, you know, it's okay for her. Mm -hmm. And it, it might be okay for me, but I, it's taken me, you know, almost 50 years to get to this point in time. And one thing that we haven't spoken about is why I came back to London. Mm -hmm. So I came back to London because my younger sister and her family were moving, wanted to move out of my mom's house and gave us a perfect time to come back to London to help the kids with their kind of high school um, end of secondary exams. And we came back, but I'm living with my mom at the moment who is, you know, she's, she's reasonably healthy, but she's also very, very ill and she needs help. And so it's a very strange situation for me, having left home when I was 19, to now be back at home almost 30 years later. And this is why I talk about stages and phases in your life. And I would just encourage everybody not to 
be kind of looking forward to a dream ideal that is not a reality for them yet or looking in the past and really focusing in on a time um, that has gone now where they were really happy but really look at what are the gifts that you have right now because I was in the states about two or three weeks ago and someone was asking me about my situation and I said yeah I would not choose to be anywhere else in the world right now of course there are plenty of other places that I would love to live but right now my mum needs me and my husband's mum needs him and if we're in the UK it makes it much easier for us to be able to do these things and so whilst I know that I'm going to be asked about a lot of things if I can't answer the question about what did I do to help my mum at the end then that's something that I will carry for the rest of my life so I suppose what I'm saying is like acknowledge what you have today and enjoy that moment even if it's a struggle and also kind of don't do things that are going to make you feel guilty about something in the future kind of do the best that you can in the situation that you're in i see that's uh ah that's very insightful especially i mean in my case also i don't know i, I don't share this too much but i think um i'm also raised as a single mom she's still in uzbekistan alhamdulillah she's very healthy and with my sister but i in the deep down i feel there, there comes a moment that I will, I might really follow your steps. But uh, so in that sense, it's just uh, as if you are speaking to me, you know, directly saying, <laughs> Alhamdulillah, thank you very much. Thank you very much. So uh, to, 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 as, as a note, as a note um, can you, like for those who are listening, for those who may not know much about positive psychology, can you tell us like two or three takeaways uh, from positive psychology, what they can do? right now to implement and to already you know improve their life it doesn't have to be very big it could be very as small as just tips what would you say if you ask you about positive psychology how we can implement in our life to make it more positive I guess. so this is a great question because i have prepared absolutely nothing but i'm going to tell you the three <laughs> things that came to my mind I'm sure, first. You, I'm sure you can do that yeah so the first thing i'm going to say is and everyone has heard of gratitude journals and things like that before but how I teach it is I would like you to think about three things that you're grateful for and kind of focus on them just before you're praying Isha. Mm -hmm. Because what you're then doing is you're kind of praying your Salah, but you're also experiencing gratitude in a very different way. And the three things can be anything. And then after you've prayed and you're making dua, thank Allah for those three things. The reason why I encourage people to do it is at Isha is because when you focus on gratitude before you go to sleep, your brain releases some really, really cool hormones and they still continue doing the work as you go into your sleep mode. So, wow. yeah, so you're kind of going to sleep with the right chemicals being released with serotonin and oxytocin and all of that other good stuff. Right. So that's one thing. The other thing that I would say is um, there's a very simple intervention that can be done to help people to have more khushu in their salah, so to help more focus. And that is like a, a 60 second meditation. So what I encourage people to, and I actually did research on this for my masters and the results came out that when you focus 
on doing the 60 second breathing exercise, then it, the research shows that it does improve your focus within your prayer. So you're basically standing, or if you sit in prayer, you're sitting, and you want to do kind of like 12 breaths slowly over one minute. And as soon as you finish, then you begin praying. Wow. That's, that's um, what I think many people struggle every day, I guess. Go ahead. Yeah. And then the third one, now the third one is a little bit of a scary one. Um, and I'm happy to share you with you um, kind of like a sheet that people can use that they can download okay. to, to okay. do this. Um, but I would encourage everybody to write their obituary. So, um, wow. <laughs> yeah, and I'll tell you why. So Alfred Nobel, of the, the famous guy from the Nobel Peace Prize, his brother passed away. And they were kind of like a fairly um, well-known family in, in Europe at the time. And so a newspaper in Paris printed the obituary, but they printed the wrong one. They printed Alfred Nobel's. And wow. when he read it, he was just like, this is not what I want to be remembered for. And his whole life pivoted. And that's why we know of Alfred Nobel as the founder of the Nobel Peace Prize. And so when you write your own obituary, then you can kind of write the things that you want to be remembered for. And it may mean that there is a shift in your life. But wow. without writing it, you're never going to know. I see. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you so much. May Allah reward you. I think we learned so much. I, you know, of course, I'm going to share this lessons in the outline. Um, as, as, as a final note, uh, where would your listeners can find, connect with you, follow you, or find out more about you? Would you like to share a website, a place where they can find you? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you can go to sayyada.com. So that's S-A-I-Y-Y-I dah.com and you can register for my weekly newsletter there you can also find the social media links and things like that alhamdulillah there's a lot of stuff that's available just kind of on the world wide web for um information that i share on positive psychology and practical theology as well and i'm also very happy to answer questions via email if people want to pick up on anything that we discussed today that sounds awesome. So having said that, we all thank you very much. And we, we as well as Onshallah, make it easy on you to finish your PhD. And after that, uh, let's uh, catch up. And if not, we talk until then, at least until you finish, let's uh, get you on the show again and get your insights. What do you say to that? Awesome. Absolutely. I'd love to do that. Jazakallah khair. Jazakallah. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Wa alaikum assalam wa rahmatullahi wa Dear listener, based on many requests from our listeners, we are launching a Muslims on Fire Academy. It's for those who want to do more than just listening. It's for those who not only want to be inspired, but to be one of the Muslims on Fire as well. It's for those who want to discover their purpose in life, follow their dreams, and live in prosperity. If this is you, join us for a journey of a lifetime. The introduction course is free. Learn more at academy.muslimsonfire.com. Learn more at academy.muslimsonfire.com.
For show notes and questions for episodes, please visit www.muslimsonfire.com. Subscribe on iTunes, Google, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you like our show, please rate, share with friends, and leave a review. With your help, it will enable us to reach more people and change their lives for the better. Stay tuned. Until next time, Assalamu Alaikum.